Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat, this opportunity to gather together as Mishpacha's family to worship before you. I pray that as we open up your word today that you will speak directly into our hearts and our lives. It'll be your word heard, your voice received, Father, that everything that is spoken will come directly from you, and that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained for your purpose. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, and the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. So, this week we are in Parsha Noach. Parsha Noach is the second Parsha of the Torah cycle. Uh, in this Parsha, we realize just how miserable we as human beings can really be. Um, we realize that it's a pretty swift turnaround before Adam and Eve ascend and kicked out the garden. Uh, and then from there, we realize from this Parsha just how rapidly we decline to the point where after the garden, God just, or in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, okay, I'm going to send you out that way. I'm going to put you outside the garden, but we'll figure this out. Uh, by the time we get to, to Noah, which is about 10 generations, give or take, from Adam to Noah. So by the time we get to Noah, 10 generations later, God says, you know what? I'm just done with a lot of you. I want to kill you all and be out of it. It wasn't worth it in the first place. Um, and I'm paraphrasing. That's probably more how I would say it than necessarily how God said it. Um, but, but that's kind of how I look at this. And so as we, realize, as we look at this, we realize the whole scenario of the flood and uh, the people that, that are, are alive at this point in time are just despicable, are disgusting, they're depraved, um, they've given over to anything and everything that the flesh desires. Um, keep in mind, I think I said this uh, on uh, the realm, uh, keep in mind that we're, we're talking such a brief period of time, I mean, we're a thousand years, but still such a brief period of time in terms of it only being 10 generations between Adam and Noah, that Noah's father, Lamech, actually knew Adam in person, all right? So we're talking, you know, people that lived six, seven, eight, nine hundred years uh, total in their lifespan. And so uh, Noah's father knew personally Adam. So I, I like to picture that the generation of Noah's father got to sit as children and listen to Adam, their great, 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 somewhere along the line, grandfather, tell them about all of the experiences of creation and what God did in the garden and the way that God came and walked with them hand in hand like a father and a child and how they fell short and chose uh, to, to give in to temptation of the enemy and they ultimately, because of sin, were kicked out of the garden and because of that action is why everybody finds themselves in the position they are today and, and so on and so forth. And I imagine that Adam had a vested interest in feeding into his children the love of the Lord. And not wanting to see them make the mistakes that he made. And not wanting to see themselves find themselves further and further and further removed from the presence of the Lord that we were created to be in in the first place. Yet somehow by the time we get to Noah's generation, the entire world is so miserably 
declined in depravity, that the Lord just cannot put up with it anymore. As a matter of fact, there are uh, distinct correlations between the language the Lord uses toward those alive during Noah's day and the same language used towards the people of Canaan when the Lord tells Israel to go in and to alleviate the land, the promised land of the Canaanite people, that they had gone so far uh, beyond uh, uh, the Lord's will that there wasn't opportunity really for them to come back again is kind of the mentality. But as we get through this, we realize, okay, the Lord comes in. He says, hey, you know what, Noah, I'm going to call you uh, out of all of the midst of this, and I'm going to take you and your sons and your wives, and I want you guys to build this really big boat. I know you don't really know what a boat is, but I want you to build one anyways, uh, because it's going to rain a lot, and you don't know what rain is, but it's going to do it soon, and a lot, and things are going to get really wet, and you're going to want the boat. Trust me. Uh, you don't want to be like Houston. You're going to want a boat to be able to serve too soon. Um, the, uh, the, you you want to make sure that you're able to get out of this, and not only am I going to uh, save humanity through you and your sons and your wives, but I'm also going to save all of creation by preserving uh, a, a minimum amount. It was a pair of each of the unclean and seven of the clean that are going to come on the boat with you. Uh, don't worry, the lions are not going to eat the lambs. I'm going to make sure their mouths are shut. By the way, I'm going to do that in the future too, but at this point, I'm going to make sure that they don't eat each other and things are going to be okay, and I'm going to provide everything you need. You're going to get all these animals on this boat. You're going to get all the food that you and all the animals are going to need, and you're going to be there for a while because things are going to be really wet, and you got to wait till everybody dies, and then you've got to wait till everything dries up, and then you'll be able to get out. And much like Abraham, Noah goes, okay, and starts building a boat. And I imagine that all of the people around him who had never heard of rain that are hearing Noah talk about rain, you know, they're seeing this big thing being built in his backyard, and the neighbor comes over and knocks on the door and says, what is this monstrosity you're doing? And it's blocking my view of, you know, the, the, the tree line or whatever. And, and Noah goes, I'm building a boat. Well, what are you, what's a boat? Well, I'm, I don't really know yet. I'm going to find out when I'm done. Okay, well, what's it for? Well, God's going to cause it this huge flood. Wait, 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 wait. What is a flood? Well, these waters are going to come from the sky called rain. Well, what are you talking about? Like, it doesn't rain. I don't know what that is. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Just trust me. The Lord said this is going to happen, and I'm going to do this, and, and this is how he's going to save humanity. And I imagine his neighbors are going, you're a fool. I don't know what you smoked, but you need to stop because this is going south quick. So he continues to build the boat uh, and brings his family on. And, and if you pay attention to the narrative in, uh, in Genesis here, uh, it's very interesting, the wording of the Parsha, because it says that uh, Noah and his family didn't board the ark until it began to flood. All right? Read the passage. Go back and read it. Uh, it says that, that they didn't begin to board, that the Lord brought them on the boat because of the flooding, came on, they got it settled, everything was ready to go, shuts the ark, and then they're saved. But it took, I, I, I imagine, uh, as we talk about the micha mocha in our service, uh, quite often uh, tradition says that Moses and Israel were proclaiming these words as they were walking into the Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds. Uh, they were proclaiming micha mocha, who is like you, O God, among the heavens, uh, as they were walking out into the water, and they were just trusting that the Lord was going to move the water because he said that's what he was going to do, and they just keep walking. And as the water gets deeper and deeper and deeper, they continue to sing Micha Mocha, Micha Mocha, Micha Mocha, and it's up to their knees, and it's up to their waist, and it's up to their stomachs, and it's up to their necks. And just before they're completely underwater and cannot breathe, the waters part, and they walk through on dry ground. Now, that's just tradition. That's just the way the sages uh, talk about this scenario. But the reality is, is it takes that much faith 
to go outside of the normal reality and follow the will of the Lord when nobody else is going to understand it. And half the time, we don't really understand it, right? So God calls Abraham out. Abraham's like, all right, cool, let's do this. He calls out Noah, and Noah's like, all right, cool, let's do this. And he goes and builds this boat. And everyone else around him thought he was absolutely bonkers. All right? And as the waters are starting to fall and everybody's starting to go, wait a second, what is this wet stuff? Um, he boards the boat, the, the ark, as the Lord calls, gets on, and, and all of a sudden the Lord saves him and his family and all of humanity that we know today are descended from him and his family. And we see the beginning of the 70 nations, as the scripture calls it, that come from his three children, uh, Shem, Ham, and uh, Yafet. And we can see the development of all of the nations around the, the globe from these, uh, these three sons of Noah. But we don't get very far after the flood, right? We, the, the boat, the, the water starts to stop raining. The, the water starts to recede. The boat gets stuck on Mount Ararat. They have to now get out of the boat and climb down Mount Ararat to be able to get back to normality again. Uh, and all of this happens. Well, we don't get a whole generation from Noah before we show just how depraved we really are because of the entrance of sin in the garden, right? Because we get to his son, uh, Ham, who immediately upon uh, coming off the boat, Noah uh, builds this uh, 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 grapevine, this or, uh, grape uh, vineyard, and makes wine, and he gets eh, a little tipsy and passes out, and uh, maybe a little more than tipsy, but he passes out, and Ham comes in, sees his father, and laughs about it, right? And Chazel, which is the sages of, of Judaism, say that it actually was a little more than just making fun of him and laughing at him, but rather that Ham actually went into where he saw his father laying naked while he was drunk, and either see who all was in the room, uh, either took advantage of him or outright castrated him. And so if you notice, Noah and his three sons are the only men left on the face of the earth, and Noah doesn't have any more children, right? And so the sages of Judaism says that either he uh, took advantage of his father, or what's more likely is he absolutely castrated his father so that Noah could no longer have children. So it wasn't just a matter of he made fun of his dad because his dad passed out drunk and naked, but he literally stopped his father from being able to produce more children and take part further in the uh, uh, repopulation of the world as God called him to be a part of. And so when Yafet and, uh, Yafet and uh, Shem come in, they hear about what went down. Instead of going in to him while he was naked, they take a, a cloth and they back in very carefully so they don't see anything and they lay the cloth over and they cover uh, their father with respect and, and, and uh, adoration of who he is and they take care of him. So we realize we don't get very far from the flood before humanity starts to uh, fall apart all over again, right? Very quickly. And then immediately after the flood, uh, in between the, the narrative of Noah and his sons and the descendants of his sons and the beginning of the narrative of Abraham, because remember Genesis, the entire book of Genesis was written for a distinct purpose. It was written by Moses, it was written to Israel, um, and it was written for the purpose of getting us from creation to the foundations of the nation of Israel so that we can see the works of the hand of God throughout creation. It wasn't written to give us a point-for-point -point absolute historical 
guideline of everything that has occurred. It is 100% true, but it isn't intended to give us a historical guideline of everything that has occurred since foundations of creation through Israel, but rather to get us from creation to Israel so that Israel can see the might, the power of God, and how he called our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, out. So we get in between Abraham and Noah. We get this random little uh, passage in in, uh, Genesis 11, beginning with verse 1, if you'll turn there, about the Tower of Babel. And it says, now the entire earth had the same language with the same vocabulary. I believe that was Hebrew, but that's a whole other story. Uh, when they traveled eastward, they found a, very, a valley plain and the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let's make bricks and bake them until they're hard. So they used bricks for stone and tar for mortar. They, then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower whose top reaches into heaven. So let's make a name for ourselves or else we will be scattered over the face of the whole land. Then Adonai came down to see the city and the tower that the sons of man had built. Adonai said, look, the people are one and all of them have the same language. So this is what they have begun to do. Now, nothing they plan to do will be impossible. Come, let us go down and confuse their language uh, or confuse their language there so that they will not understand each other's language. So Adonai scattered them from there over the face of the entire land and they stopped building the city. This is why it is named Babel, because Adonai confused the languages of the entire world there. And from there, Adonai scattered them over the face of the entire world. So we realize a couple of things in this passage. First and foremost, they wanted to make a name for themselves. All right? If we go back uh, to looking at the enemy and we go to Jeremiah, where it talks about him being cast out of heaven, he wanted to make a name for himself as well, right? He wanted to take the throne of God. So here we see humanity not far removed from Noah and the salvation God brings through Noah. uh, And we get to the Tower of Babel, in which all of humanity that is existent in this day all speak the exact same language and can actually communicate with one another and be able to do things in unison and in unity without having to have language barriers and cultural barriers and whatever else. And we realize because of human, humanity's depravity at this point that them coming together to do anything is going to turn out bad, right? And so they build this tower, and the whole purpose of this tower was they wanted to try and reach God. They wanted to try, as some of the, the sages and theologians say, they wanted to try to become gods themselves, They wanted to make a name for themselves, right? They wanted to try and become gods for themselves. They actually became or attempted to become echad, to become one in unison of vision and unity in their their efforts, not for the purposes of God, but for the purposes of flesh. They didn't want to do what the Lord was wanting of them, but they wanted to make themselves something more than they already were. Remember, uh, the enemy then, after being cast out of heaven, comes into the garden in the uh, image of the serpent and tries to project his own issues. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be God himself. And when he couldn't be, he gets upset. He gets cast out of heaven. And he comes to earth and he talks to Adam and Eve, who God says he made in his image and likeness. And he tries to derail them from his image and likeness by then telling them, you can become more like God. 
God knows that if you eat this fruit, that you're going to be like him because you'll now know good and evil. And Adam and Eve not realizing, hey, I was already made in his image and like this, but going, hey, that sounds like an awesome plan. So the reality is, is the kind of baseline core uh, of sin itself, what the, the production of sin comes from is a desire to be more than what we're created for, to be different than what we are created to be. And so here we have uh, these people, the, the descendants of Noah and his sons who now have created this tower and are trying to climb to the heavens to become God themselves. And the Lord sees it, and, and keep in mind, God sees all, knows all. He doesn't need to actually come down here to see what's going on, right? He didn't need to come down to the garden to see Adam and Eve walking around with leaves covering themselves. He already knew what was going on. He didn't need to ask, hey, where are you at, Adam? He already knew. He didn't need to go, hey, where'd you get clothes from? He already knew. He didn't get, need to go, hey, who told you were naked? He already knew. Uh, and in the same sense here, he didn't need to actually physically come down to see the tower, but instead he came down to see what his humanity, that his creation had become in uh, a closer sense. So he says, look, the people are one and all of them have the same language. So this is what they have begun to do. Now, nothing they do, uh, they plan, this is verse six, now nothing they plan to do will be impossible. Uh, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each each other's language. In the Hebrew, the way that this is described is not that he necessarily created new languages, but that he confounded the way we understand language. All right, so I'm going to pose a hypothesis to you here. Um, in a moment, we're going to roll to Acts 2 because Acts 2 is the counter narrative to this particular occurrence. Uh, so one is what happens when we come together in unity is echad as one outside of the will of God and operating solely in flesh. The other is what happens when we come together in the will of God, operating as one in his presence and what he desires rather than the flesh. So here, uh, God doesn't, the, the, the hypothesis I want to pose to you is, I don't believe that God created a new language. All right? I don't. Uh, I still think that we are likely all speaking one language, just as we were in the foundation of creation. We're all saying the exact same thing in the exact same language. We just don't have the ability to understand it. All right? Uh, and I've talked to a few people over the course of my life that I'm really glad I don't have to understand everything they say uh, and can walk away from it acting like I didn't know. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but what we realize is that the, the Lord says he confounded or confused the language. So I believe what happened is that the Lord actually altered the ability to hear and receive the communication that's going on so that I am only hearing English, uh, or rather can only understand English. I don't speak other languages fluently. I can read and write Hebrew, but I don't speak Hebrew fluently. I'd like to. I'm just lazy. Um, but uh, I, I, I can understand and I can speak English. I can read and write English. I'm fluent in English. I'm not you know, good at it. We're Americans and we don't speak good English. Um, we don't speak English goodly. Uh, but uh, I can understand English. I'm fluent in it. Uh, but the reality is, is I can't understand Chinese. I can't understand uh, uh, Spanish or Portuguese or Russian, uh, which is really weird, or German, uh, which is even weirder. I can't understand these languages. Uh, you ever notice everything in German sounds angry? Somebody tells you I love you in, ang in German and you, you feel like they're about to punch you. Um, but <laughs> but the, the reality is, is that I, I can't understand those languages. That doesn't mean we're not speaking the same language. Uh, because there's only one real language. God created humanity, and here we see he confounded our ability to understand language. And why did he confound our ability to understand? He confounded our ability to understand so that in the flesh, 
We do not become one and make anything possible that is outside the will of God because if we, as he says here, if they all come together to do this, nothing is impossible. They all come together. If all of humanity came together to do one single thing, nothing would be impossible. Now with that in mind, imagine if we as humanity came together to fight hunger. Honestly, fight hunger. Not like just give people a hamburger or a $5 bill or whatever, but actually try to stop hunger. Nothing's impossible. We could actually do that if we tried, right? The question is, where is our direction and our purpose? Is it of the flesh or is it of the Lord's will? And so as we move through this, we start to realize he confounded or confused their language. He didn't create new languages, but instead he made it impossible for us to understand one another in different uh, languages and cultures. And then as though that wasn't enough, he scattered them across the land. Right? And so now this is where we start to see the nation spread out. And you start to see people move into uh, Asiatic countries or into Europe or uh, further south in Africa or out uh, further eastward in the Middle East and uh, throughout Central Europe and so on and so forth. This is where we start to see that spread of humanity begin to go around. Keep in mind, just as a, a, a brief kind of uh, backup for my theory here, for my hypothesis, um, if you pay attention to pagan culture anywhere in the world, I don't care if you're talking Native Americans, if you're talking Mayans and Incans in South America, you're talking Alaskan uh, Eskimos, or you're talking uh, the, the Gaelic pagan culture from Ireland or uh, pagan culture in Africa or the islands uh, like New Zealand and, and uh, Australia, uh, old ancient Egypt, uh, Rome, Greece, any of these pagan cultures that existed, there's one thing we know for sure about each of them. They all had the exact same gods. All of them had the exact same gods. They had different names, but the exact same. You always had a god of war, a god of fire, a god of wind, a god of water, a god of uh, fertility, a god of whatever. They all had the exact same gods. They just had different names. And although we were spread all around the face of the earth, somehow in unity they all had the same uh, uh, polytheistic approach to everything. And I think one of the reasons God confounded the language in Genesis chapter 11 is because if that rapidly from Noah to Babel, uh, you're talking 10 generations from Adam to Noah, 10 from Noah to Abraham. So within a few short generations, because this is between Noah and Abraham, within a few short generations between Noah and Abraham, immediately after the flood, humanity went to the barrel again and started swirling down the toilet in a heartbeat. Um, and rather than the Lord destroying everything again, he comes in and he confounds the languages and spreads us out so that we can't quite be as in unity and unison as we desire to be. And it's harder for us to follow the ways of flesh, taking down all the rest of humanity with us. We can only impact a few people at a time. Now we move forward to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, as I said, is a converse reality. It's a, uh, the, the exact opposite scenario, same exact thing, but an exact opposite scenario. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Shavuot had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues like fire spreading out appeared to them and settled on each one of them. They were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Ruach enabled them to speak out. Now it says they began to speak in other tongues. It doesn't say they began to speak in new languages. All right? They began to speak in other tongues, which means other languages. Now, why did all of a sudden they start? These are guys from the Galilee, right? These are guys from Israel. These are guys that speak Hebrew, maybe Aramaic. They might know a little Greek, uh, Greek but they really don't speak a whole bunch of other languages. 
But here they are, these men from the Galilee, impacted by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden they begin to speak in all these different languages from all around the world. And how do we know it's all these different languages? Because verse 5 goes on to say, Now Jewish people were staying in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound came, the crowd gathered. They were bewildered because each of them was hearing them, uh, the, the Talmudim, speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, all these who are speaking, these men who are speaking different tongues, are they not Galileans? Are they Galileans? Uh, how is it that we each hear our own birth language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those living in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and uh, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya towards Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jewish people and proselytes, Christians and, uh, sorry, Crete, Cretans, well, why Christians popped out in my Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring in our tongues the mighty deeds of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to each other, what does this mean? So the disciples, as the Spirit of God moves and they start to speak in different tongues, they didn't start speaking in new languages. Uh, they didn't start click-clacking and whatever else. They started speaking in languages that these men from, uh, that, that had come to Israel on Shavuot, which was a Shalosh uh, Regalima, it was one of the pilgrimage feasts. They came to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the temple to observe Shavuot as they were supposed to from all these different nations that God had spread the Jewish people out through. And they came in and they didn't speak all the same languages. They likely didn't speak Hebrew very well themselves other than maybe saying a few prayers. Yet here they were in Jerusalem at the temple doing what they were supposed to do because this is what Jews do. The Spirit of God falls. This miraculous event occurs. And all of a sudden, each of these men from different places, from different parts of the world, start to hear these guys from the, 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 the areas of the Galilee speaking in their own languages. Guys that don't speak anything other than Hebrew, Aramaic, all of a sudden speaking in all these different languages. It'd be kind of like I'm sitting here right now and somebody in Russia watching this on Facebook all of a sudden starts hearing every Everything I'm saying in Russian. I'm not speaking Russian right now. I don't think so. Uh, but, but all of a sudden, somebody in Russia starts completely understanding perfectly everything I'm saying in Russian. Uh, although I'm not speaking Russian. That doesn't mean that the disciples all of a sudden started speaking these different languages. They were speaking Hebrew. They were speaking the language they knew. And the Lord allowed for the hearing of language to be unconfounded so that those around them could hear the mighty deeds of God, as it says here, could hear about the mighty deeds of God going on. Uh, and it's really neat as we start to see this, because there's all sorts of weird theological opinions and positions on speaking in tongues, and whether or not we should or shouldn't, and, and what it looks like, and whether or not it should have interpretation or not. I honestly think interpretation is a very important part of, of speaking in tongues. You know why? Because when there's interpretation, that means that somebody else has an unconfounding of hearing too. All right? When, when you start to speak in tongues, it's not just some random sounds coming out your mouth, some random noises, but it's a language coming forth that you don't know that somebody else does, and the Lord unconfounds their hearing to be able to hear what you're saying. And that's the beauty of all of this. And I think it's awesome and, and mighty and powerful because between the Tower of Babel, when we see in one language, in one accord, as echad, as one flesh, all of these people come together to do something that is of the flesh, desiring to be more than what God created us to be, desiring to be closer to God than what we're capable of being because the Word of God says that His presence cannot dwell among sinful man. Uh, all of a sudden, the Lord says, hey, this is not okay. They're trying to do something in unison and the flesh, 
and it's going to cause problems. In Acts chapter 2, we have the converse scenario in which all of these people are coming together to do something in unison in God's will. It was God's will for them to be at the temple on Shavuot. It was God's will for the disciples to be there, not in some upper room somewhere down the street where people couldn't see nothing. Anyways, there were thousands of people that saw what was happening that very day, which tells us they were at the temple in this huge open area where everybody could see what was happening. And the entirety of everyone that was there that was experiencing were impacted by it. And it goes on to the end of Acts 2 to say, in this case, since they were not doing something in unity and flesh, but instead in the presence and power and purpose of God, there were thousands added that day that were being saved. Thousands added that day were being saved. The purpose to this was to show us, or rather the purpose to Babel was to show us how rapidly we as humanity operating in the flesh can devolve. How rapidly we can fall apart and literally destroy everything around us. Sin came into creation, and because of sin in creation, God said, I'm going to wipe out everything that has the spirit of life within it. I'm going to wipe out everything that has the spirit of life within it. Where does that spirit of life come from? It comes from the Lord. And he saves humanity through Noah and his sons, and all of humanity begins to grow, and just a few short years later, we're right back in the depth of where we were in the first place. And we start to see the Tower of Babel and the scenario there, and language becomes confused, and we're scattered around the globe. And in Acts chapter 2, he begins to bring all of the nations back together again. Notice in Acts 2, it says there were those there from all over the world that were Jews and proselytes. In other words, Gentiles who became a part of Israel. You know the body Messiah is? Jews and Gentiles who have become a part of Israel. When we gather together with the same heart of the disciples in Acts chapter 2 and the power and presence of the Lord for His purposes, not ours. For the purpose of the Spirit of God and the presence of God, not the purposes of the flesh. For the desire of His heart, not our heart. For the desire to see Him glorified, not us glorified. For the desire to see His name be known by all. And in that day, uh, the Lord will be one and His name one, as we just said in the Alenu. When we come together, we desire to see His name be known throughout the world. His name be one throughout the world, not our name. It actually says in Genesis 11 that they wanted to make a name, Shem, for themselves. You know what? We're already created in the image of likeness, the only name we ever need to be worried about. And that's the Lord God of, uh, of hosts, the most awesome reality there is in the world is that we as humanity carrying the breath of life were created in the image and likeness of the one true and only God of all creation. And everything that has happened since the garden all the way to today has occurred for the purpose of restoring you and I back to his presence, back to his desires for our lives, back to what he created us and breathed the breath of life into us for in the first place. And he has begun through the work of his Ruach HaKodesh to unconfound the hearing of his people so that we can in fact do the impossible by coming together in unity in Him and His purposes to see His name glorified before all men, not ours, so that the world around us may come to know the saving grace of Messiah Yeshua and be in His presence for all eternity, be restored to the Garden of Eden for all eternity. We haven't been given the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, for any other purpose than His. We would read in the book of Acts that there were men that would come up to the disciples and say, hey, give us what you got because there's some money we can make off of this thing. 
right? I, I, could, I could make bank off of this. Uh, you know, I could do a magic show. I could do whatever. Like, we could fix the world so I could make money. And this would be awesome. And they said, no, no, it's not about that. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. It's not about that. It's not about what the desire of the flesh is. As a matter of fact, all we got to do is read a few chapters of the Bible every once in a while to see how miserable the desire of the flesh is. All you got to do is open up the news every once in a while to see how miserable the desire of the flesh is. Look at Iran, Iraq, Syria, parts of Africa. Uh, look at, go back a few hundred years to uh, slave trade in America as it was 400 years ago. Look at slave trade as it is today with the uh, sex trafficking. Look at, uh, uh, what was it, just a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, there was a news article about some guy that called the, the cops out because, or the ambulance out because his, I think, 17-month-old or 10-month-old, whatever it was, baby stopped breathing, and they come out, and they're working on it, come to find out this dude had killed his own kid. And it wasn't the first time he, he abused it, the, the kid so bad that it died. It wasn't the first time he'd abused it either. They found all sorts of bruising evidence of this kid being abused. It wasn't even two years old, and the kid guy was abusing this kid over and over again. We don't have to get very far before we realize how miserable we are when we chase the desires of the flesh, how miserable humanity could be. Yet we serve a God who has empowered you and I for the distinct purpose of seeing humanity restored back to chasing after the desires of the heart of God. And when we come together in unity, as occurred at the Tower of Babel, as occurred in Acts 2, but not in the purposes of the flesh, but in the purposes of his heart's desire, we actually can do the impossible. We can see what Acts 2 talks about, that in the end of Acts 2, there were thousands that were added that were saved, and every day after, there were hundreds being added. We can see these things. We can watch this stuff occur, not because of what we desire, not because of what our flesh wants, but because we're chasing after the ways of our Heavenly Father and the desires of His heart, which are restoration and love and compassion. A lot of times we like to Bible thump salvation into people, and it doesn't work that way. It's not going to work that way. It's never worked that way. If you're a, a, a student of the history of the body of Messiah, just go back to the 1800s, the fire and brimstone preaching. Not many people were scared into salvation then, and we can't do it now. I know lots of people who have faith merely for fire insurance. They believe in Yeshua's sacrifice merely for fire insurance, but their life doesn't show any difference. But we look through the book of Acts and the disciples and those that, that ministered with them, those that came to faith because of them, there was fruit being produced. Day in and day out, there were lives being changed, and they came together in unity. Even though they had language barriers and complications, they came together in unity because the single language that brought them together was the language of love from the heart of the Father. And that's what brought them together. And when the Spirit of God moves and, and tongues begin to speak and interpretation begins to flow, it's because the Lord is unconfounding our hearing, not for our own benefit, but that we can be useful in His kingdom, for His glory, for His purposes, so that others might come to find His salvation. Anything short of that, and we're no better than the people that built the Tower of Babel. We're no better than the people that died off in the flood. We're no better than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're no better than those of the Babylonians. We're no better than those of the, the, the great Greek, Greece, Greek empire. We're no better than anyone else who has ever tormented other human life. But the Lord has called us to be better. He has called us to be greater in His power, in His presence, in His spirit, 
so that the world around us may come to know his salvation. I don't know about you, but I think that's awesome when we can look through Scripture and see all of these things come in play over and over again. It's, it's like a huge domino effect that we, we watch. I mean, it's, it's, I say this a lot half-jokingly, but it's almost as though God knew what he was doing in the first place. And the thing that's always baffled me is that he's called people like me to be a part of this. I don't understand. I, there's nothing great about me. And I'm assuming, because I know most of you, there's nothing that great about you either. I know my past and my mistakes, and, and I can assume that some of yours are relatively similar to mine. And I'm telling you right now, if we're honest with ourselves, we're all pretty miserable. Or at least we were. But yet the Lord still called each of us to be a part of his purpose and his kingdom. You know what? The narrative was no different for the people that died out in the flood. He created them to be a part of his purpose and his kingdom. The Tower of Babel, the people that built it were created to be a part of his purpose and his kingdom. Sodom and Gomorrah, the people there were created to be a part of his purpose and his kingdom. The men and women that lived in the land of Canaan before Israel went in were created to be a part of his purpose and his kingdom. Many of them that lived in the land of Canaan were actually descendants or relatives of Abraham. The Midianites and the Ammonites came through Lot and his weird daughters. Um, the Moabites, uh, the, the, there you go, the Moabites came through Lot. The, the, uh, the um, actually, Moab, the, the, Ammonites came through Adam, through Esau. Uh, Esau. The Midianites, the Moabites came through Lot. Uh, the, uh, in Judges 6, 7, 8, we read about, uh, and we just talked about this a few months ago in our Judges study, we read about groups of uh, people that were from the east that attacked Israel that were actually part of the Amalekites uh, and such, were, were actually descendants of Abraham. We read about them in Genesis 22, 25. Uh, they were children of Abraham and Keturah after Sarah had died. Uh, many of these people that Israel had conflict with that were in the land of Canaan, many of these people that were so far removed from the presence of the Lord that he just wanted to get them out of the way were actually descendants of the people that God called out first. They were related to, and it was family conflict. The reality is, is we're all related through Noah anyways. We're all related through Adam and Eve. We really don't have to go that, that far. The, the flood kind of shortens that a little bit. Uh, we're all related through Noah. It's all family conflict that's going on anyways. But the reality is, is the Lord has called us in spite of who we've been to be restored in who he is so that we can become who he wants us to be so we can impact this world around us for what he desires for his creation. The question is, are you willing to get behind that? Are you willing to allow him to work? Are you willing to allow his Ruach HaKodesh to have such a grip on your life that anything and everything that you do is singularly and solely in line with the power and the presence of the God, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because that's when we start to see this world changed. That's when we start to see the kingdom of heaven here on earth poured out. That's when we start to see the unconfounding of language so that others may come to know his salvation and thousands may be saved and hundreds may be saved and beyond that may be saved and know that the breath of life that is within them was given to them to be a part of the kingdom of God. Amen. Avrahamim, Father uh, of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you that your word says 
that it never comes back void, that every word you have spoken, you have spoken for a distinct purpose, and that purpose is to restore us in your presence. Father, I pray that as we continue to move through the Taurus cycle this year, that you will continue to reveal the depth of your love for us, the depth of your compassion for us, the weight of your salvation that has been given freely for all, and that that message of salvation didn't begin with Matthew, but it began with the very first breath that spoke creation into existence. And Father, we thank you that you have loved us so much that you have redeemed us from who we were so that we can become who you desire. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. Amen.